You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. As well, these podcasts can be heard at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. There are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 62, by Rudolf Steiner, 14 lectures, entitled Results of Spiritual Research, translated by Simon Blaxland DeLange. This is Lecture 4, given in Berlin on the 21st of November, 1912, entitled The Paths of Supersensible Knowledge. Already in the introductory lectures to this year's winter cycle, I have frequently made reference to the sources of the supersensible knowledge of man, which, together with its relationship to the world, is the thematic basis of this whole cycle of lectures. I have indicated that these sources of supersensible knowledge reside in the human soul, in every human soul, as slumbering forces and faculties which can be brought forth in intimate inner experience through appropriate means so that a human individual can become capable of gaining insight into the spiritual worlds. The development of these faculties will be characterized this evening in broad outline. Further explanations of what I shall present today will be given in the further lectures. If the object is to present an initial understanding of how the supersensible forces of cognition, slumbering in the soul, can be called forth, one can always draw attention to a phenomenon or fact that is enacted in the case of every person in the course of twenty-four hours, the alternation between sleep and waking. People usually take little notice of these riddles of life that are a familiar part of everyday life, and the infrequency of this attention and the oppressive feelings that can result readily call forth the longing to resolve such riddles. Some of these more troubling riddles of life will be addressed in the next lecture. Today, however, I shall begin with a riddle that, as a matter of fact, only eludes attention for its enigmatic quality because the phenomenon in question is so familiar, namely the alternation between sleep and waking consciousness. In order to maintain ourselves in life, we must, with every day, pass from the state of consciousness to that of unconsciousness. What has actually occurred, we need only to indicate it in layman's language, when someone passes into the unconscious state of sleep. The receptive capacity of the senses ceases. Thinking, which is linked to the activity of the brain, insofar as it is engaged in the outer world, ceases. We feel all the activities and all the acts of consciousness that fill our daily lives sinking into the oblivion of sleep. It would be a logical impossibility for anyone judging without prejudice to think that all our conceptions, our feelings, sensations, emotions and passions, indeed all that we have by way of ideals and ideas, that surge within us from morning to evening in a conscious state pass, every time we go to sleep, into nothingness, as far as our being is concerned, and the following morning again come into being. Only a logical bias 
can deny that a person's soul spiritual essence is also present while he is in the unconscious state of sleep. If today we hypothetically presuppose, the following lectures will justify this presupposition, that while someone is in sleeping consciousness, the soul spiritual core of his being has withdrawn from his physical body and from the forces that enliven it and is living in a spiritual world, it is not improbable that this is the reason why this person, whose soul spiritual essence has withdrawn from his body, is unable to perceive his surroundings in the way that he perceives them when in the physical world. He avails himself of his eyes, his other sensory tools and the instrument of his brain. It is, I say, not an improbable supposition to think that a person's soul spiritual forces have the initial purpose of making it possible for there to be a world around him in the ordinary life of the senses and the brain, and that when, as in sleep, he does not have the possibility of perceiving through these instruments, they are too meager, too weak, actually to behold, feel and think what they might then be able to perceive. Such a supposition could be proved to be correct only if it was actually possible to draw forth the forces that are supposedly weak from their hidden recesses. That is, if one were in the position to give substance to or concentrate the soul forces that are in ordinary life thin, so that instead of what a person experiences in sleep, when he ceases to make use of his senses and his brain, a condition could arise that is similar to sleep, while nevertheless being in a certain sense completely opposite to it. This condition would have to be similar to sleep, and that a person would not forcibly, as in going to sleep, but voluntarily bring about a process of withdrawal from the senses, or from the brain, through his inner forces, through his will, so that he could make it possible for himself to be fully awake, but not to see his surroundings with his eyes or to perceive anything with his other senses and to bring both eyes and the other senses to a state of complete silence. In other words, that he is able likewise to suppress ordinary thinking, that thinking which engages in everyday life through ideas concerning the outward physical world of the senses. While in being able voluntarily to suppress what otherwise enables him to perceive, he would additionally have to be capable of not entering in his soul-spiritual essence into the unconsciousness of sleep, but of concentrating forces which are otherwise weak or rarefied, so that he can rightly be active without his body outside his body. The question arises, whether what has just been expressed can in some way be achieved. This can, of course, be answered only through what the person concerned brings about on his own account, namely through the fact that he enters into the position of applying to his soul the means whereby what has been characterized occurs. By applying such means to the soul, one comes to supersensible knowledge. The path to supersensible knowledge is not one that leads there by outward means, 
that requires all manner of machinations existing purely in the outer world, but it is an intimate inner path, and everything that must be undertaken for it occurs in the depths of the life of the soul itself. Now, if we are wanting to ascend to the worlds that have the potential to explain to us the outer world in which we live, if, therefore, we want to ascend to the supersensible worlds, there are three stages through which we must pass. A fuller description of these three stages can be found in the book titled Knowledge of the Higher Worlds, How Is It Achieved? Readers aside, also known as How to Know Higher Worlds. And of readers aside. They can be indicated here only in broad outline. In characterizing these stages, I beg you not to become fixed on particular words, partly because the words are habitually used today to mean something quite different, and because these words do not resound well in the thought habits of the present, because they are used for all sorts of things of which one has a vague or imprecise knowledge and also for certain things that one rightly rejects. Thus at times a particular kind of feeling is called forth when one hears these words, and it is easy to see that for the things that are to be spoken about here it has to be as it is, for our language is there for the outer world. Hence the words for what is to be characterized are derived from the outer world and cannot ever be precisely suitable for what lies outside the outer world of the senses for which language has been created. The first stage of higher supersensible knowledge is what is referred to as imagination, imaginative knowledge. And I would ask you not to make the mistake to which I have just alluded of understanding by this quality of imagination for today's purposes only what I shall immediately characterize. The second stage of supersensible knowledge is inspiration, and the third stage is what, if one uses the word as we shall later characterize it, and not as it is often imprecisely used, one can call intuition. To these three stages of supersensible knowledge, the outward sensory and intellectual knowledge that we employ in ordinary life and also in acquiring knowledge of the outer world is related as a kind of preliminary stage, so that one can, in all, if one adds the supersensible stages of knowledge, speak of four stages of human knowledge. Now there are many ways, and many ways must also be used, of raising oneself from the ordinary knowledge imparted through the senses and intellect to the first stage of supersensible knowledge, imagination. And, because there would not be time for a detailed description, I want to emphasize specifically how the soul can achieve this with one of the means. Others can be found in, titled Knowledge of the Higher Worlds, of awakening the supersensible faculties of knowledge slumbering within it. One of the means is what is referred to as meditation. If we pose ourselves the question as to what meditation is in a spiritual scientific sense, we would have to say, meditation is devoting oneself to a mental picture, a thought sensation, or a will content, 
in so intensive a way and in such a manner as does not happen in ordinary life, but as is suited for concentrating or condensing forces that are otherwise present in a rarefied form in our soul life. Although the alternative path is also possible, it is good not to use for such soul knowledge ideas or mental pictures that one would otherwise encounter in ordinary life or in the pursuit of ordinary knowledge. These mental pictures can also be used, but they are not as good. The mental pictures that are of the greatest use for meditation are of a symbolic nature. I should like to develop one such symbolic mental picture here, which will already be familiar to some listeners from other contexts. It may at first appear grotesque and paradoxical that it would be asked of anyone to let what will now be spoken of to take effect within his soul, but we shall characterize afterward why it may happen. Let us suppose that someone imagines that he has two glasses before him, an empty glass and one partially filled with water. He now visualizes himself pouring the water from the glass containing water into the empty one, and imagines that in pouring the water from the one glass into the other, the glass that had water in it does not, as happens in the outer world, become emptier and emptier, but ever more full. This is indeed a paradoxical idea, but this idea has a symbolic quality, and it should live as such in the consciousness of the spirit researcher. It is a way of symbolically characterizing for our soul the nature and essence of human love. With human love and with everything that has to do with the idea of love, it can be said with certainty that the source of love is so infinitely deep and of such infinite richness that if we see ourselves in comparison with the reality of love in the world, we must on every occasion modestly admit that this riddle of love is in its true essence surely unfathomable for every soul. And the more we have this feeling of unfathomability, the better it is for the content and intensity of our life. But we can know and emphasize one quality of true love with all clarity, and this is the quality that is portrayed to us symbolically through the image of which we have just spoken. A person who behaves lovingly toward another person by enacting deeds of love never becomes poorer or emptier through what he does out of love, but he becomes ever fuller and fuller, ever richer and richer in his soul life. This quality of love is clearly exhibited before us if we imagine the picture of the two glasses and of pouring water from one into the other. We do something similar when we apply this to another area of cognition and thereby arrive at important conclusions for the outer world of the senses. Let us suppose that we have before us a circular plate-like form consisting of an unknown substance. If we have an initial look at this circular form, we can say that the nature and composition of this substance are unknown to us. However, there is one thing that we can do if we want to come to know something about this disk. We can draw a circle. Then we have extracted something from this disk, namely, that it is circular. And what we have extracted from it is definitely true, 
however little we may know otherwise about the object. This is what we are doing when we think mathematically, and the whole of mathematics is in this sense symbolic in nature, that we emphasize something symbolically. This process of forming images that can be perceived with the senses and then apprehended by the soul is, as regards experiences of a soul and spiritual nature, the preparation for imaginative knowledge. Were someone to say that the spirit researcher sets out to allow images and symbols to live in his soul that do not correspond to any truth, and that he thereby embarks from the premise of thinking untruths and letting them live in his soul, one would have to answer, of course, the true spirit researcher is aware that what he allows in this way to live in his soul as symbols does not correspond to any outward reality. If he were for a single moment to mistake the symbol for a reality of some sort, he would not be someone who was on the way to supersensible knowledge, but rather on the way to illusion. The purpose of these symbols is not to depict outward realities, but to live in our soul, so that we connect and combine them with our soul life and concentrate upon them. Once we are in a position to think about such a symbol so strongly that we employ the whole power of our soul to allow only this symbol to live in our soul and put all other outer impressions and other thoughts aside, so that we bring nothing but this image to the focal point of our consciousness, such an image is for this very reason better than a direct impression of an outer reality because such an impression always draws our soul forces back to the outer reality and, as it were, takes us out of ourselves. But if, with the full awareness that we have something that is a pure fabrication, we have formed for ourselves a pictorial mental image to which we now devote ourselves, this is something that contains reality only insofar as it is derived from it. Whatever images we may form, we have taken them from outer reality. These images have been imagined in colors, forms, and so forth. They are derived from outer reality, but they are not related to it. For in outer reality it does not happen that a glass becomes fuller when one empties it of its contents. Such an exercise has the consequence that the soul has to concentrate its forces in a completely different way than if it is helped by what it has otherwise experienced. If the person who wants to follow the path into the supersensible worlds has the patience and endurance repeatedly to practice such concentrations of his soul life, he will be able to have a quite definite inner experience. Having such an experience is the first step toward imaginative knowledge he will have the experience that he has by this means inwardly change his soul life, and that after some time he can become aware how from his soul itself, without his having brought this about, symbols or images appear, and in such a way that they come before him with all the appearance of reality, as is otherwise the case only when we have had perceptions of the outside world and have formed ideas or mental pictures about them. Whereas in ordinary life mental pictures rise up from the soul as mirror images of outer reality, 
Through the exercises in question, ideas arise from the depths of soul life that are, of course, initially only images. But the elevation of soul life consists in that the soul feels itself inwardly strong and that it can enter into a state that is similar and yet of an opposite nature to that of sleep. In sleep we withdraw from all outer perceptions and also from the thinking that is bound to the brain, but we fall into a state of unconsciousness. In imaginative cognition we likewise take leave of all outer perceptions and of all brain-bound thinking, for we suppress all of this. But nevertheless, the soul does not become empty, does not become bereft of consciousness, but images rise up from its depths, images that become ever richer and richer, ever more all-encompassing, and that appear like a new world before the soul. This is the world of which indications have been given in these lectures, that can by someone lacking expertise in such matters easily be mistaken, also in its true worth, for the world of pathological illusions, hallucinations, delusions, and the like. But only someone who does not know reality on this level, but judges only in accordance with soul pathology, can make such a misjudgment. For there is a great difference between ideas that are even in the smallest degree pathological and those that have been arrived at in the true sense through methodical soul development. Anyone who has learned even only a little about what is referred to as pathological soul manifestations, such as hallucinations, illusions or delusions, knows one thing, that those people who have succumbed to such notions believe so firmly in their reality that the belief that they evince for experiences of the outer world of the senses cannot compete with it. This is what is characteristic of delusions and illusions, that those who have fallen prey to them also develop an overwhelming belief in them. Nothing is more difficult than to talk a person who has illusions out of them and they do not even need to be on the level of hallucinations, but may be no more than ordinary delusions, paradoxical ideas. When, for example, a person begins in a pathological way to develop within himself the idea that he is being persecuted by another person, it is extraordinarily difficult to coax this idea away from him through mere persuasion. And what happens is that such a person builds up the most astonishing logical thought structures in order to prove how right he is to perpetuate such delusions. A person can be possessed by what comes over him and he firmly believes in the objective reality of such ideas. If you review only to a small extent what is said in the book titled Knowledge of the Higher Worlds, you will see that while a person is in the process of letting such images and ideas work upon his soul, everything is at the same time done by a right spiritual schooling to ensure that, in the same measure that this world of images blossoms in the soul, any sense of being imprisoned by these images, any belief in them as an objective reality, is driven from the soul, so that at no moment is the spirit-pupil 
ever able to arrive at the idea that what is thus arising for him by way of imaginations is an objective reality. All spiritual schooling is aberrant if it does not at the same time evoke in the soul the clarity that miraculous creations such as new worlds that manifest themselves from time to time have, in the way that they present themselves, no objective reality. Its sole purpose is inwardly to enliven the soul in order to make it richer in itself and, to use a paradoxical expression, inwardly more real, filled to a greater extent by what is truly real. And this is the best, indeed the only, right achievement of the pupil, that he knows that the imaginations that appear are none other than a mirror image of one's own being. When the spirit pupil develops the possibility of overcoming all belief in the reality, in the objectivity of these imaginations of his, in the moment that he receives them, the spiritual schooling has found its right course. For many people it is generally difficult to add the one to the other, since by engaging in exercises such as these they have, as it were, been gifted with a new world, with a world of, at times, magnificent ideas and mental pictures. Thus it is for many such people an extraordinary source of satisfaction and comfort, something that fills them with a sense of congeniality. And anyone who sought to impart to them, even to the least degree, the belief that this has no objective reality, but is merely a reflection of their own being, and that their own being is only being expressed more fully than before, would be viewed by them as an enemy, as someone who is ruining their finest inner aspirations. But it must be understood that such imaginations, in the way that they initially appear, are not suitable for giving true knowledge of the higher worlds, but only provide a bridge for the soul. For a quite different task now begins for the soul, that task which gradually leads from imagination to inspiration. There now begins a kind of battle between the soul and that which appears in this way as its imaginations. In order to characterize the nature of this battle, I need to employ a picture from ordinary life. In ordinary life we constantly have the experience that we do not have a full awareness of our inner life. Just think how it would be if you had everything that you had ever imagined in your consciousness. You would be able to recall ideas that you have had several decades ago. These reside in the depths of your soul, and at any opportunity they are summoned forth. This means that in ordinary life one has the possibility to forget and to bring forth from the soul what has been forgotten. Thus one has the possibility of drawing forth from one's consciousness what it experiences in terms of ideas, and to separate this from one's conscious life, so that it abides within one's soul independently of one's conscious life. The content of one's consciousness can therefore become submerged, so that it ceases to be part of one's conscious life. Although a somewhat different situation pertains in this realm, something similar has to be achieved as regards all our imaginations 
when we become spirit researchers. We must be able voluntarily to obliterate from our soul every imagination that appears, to extinguish it and bring it into a state where it is cast forth from our consciousness as a forgotten idea that we can later recall again. This is necessary. In the whole area of our imaginations, we have to achieve mastery over every single imagination. We have to be able to make every single one independent from us. Any conscientious spirit researcher who wants to carry out spiritual research that he then wants to share with the wider world again and again sees to it that he thrusts down, makes unconscious, obliterates what thus appears before his soul as a picture. Then it returns again, though now not only voluntarily, but through something entirely different, through an inner power of which we become conscious only in this moment when we stand at the appropriate level. And not all imaginations come to the surface of consciousness, but we have the clear awareness that there are imaginations that remain submerged and are not brought to the level of conscious knowledge. Or if they reappear, they show themselves to be of such a nature that we reject them. Imaginations change when they are recalled by us. They are then also something entirely different. They come through to us in the same way as perceptions of the things of the physical world present themselves. For the same reasons why we are, if we are of sound mind, able to distinguish outwardly something that we have dreamt, something that does not exist, from something real, we can similarly recognize the true reality, the spiritual essence of what reappears as an imagination. When such things have been discussed, it has been asked, by what means can someone be convinced whether the imaginations that he has cast forth from his subjectivity and has given over to the realm of objectivity in order that they may be given back again represent realities or unrealities? After all, we know that there are suggestive forces and fantasies that are so strong that they overwhelm a person so that he experiences as a reality something that is not actually there. This has been exemplified by someone who is so sensitive that without drinking lemonade he has the taste of lemonade in his mouth by the mere idea of doing so. This is an example of an instance where something manifests itself that does not really exist. One might therefore attribute certain imaginations concerning reincarnation to a similar deception. An objection of this nature can always be made. It can also be maintained in the realm of dialectics through a mere play with words, though not where reality is concerned. For anyone who develops his soul in the manner described arrives at the same possibility of distinguishing between truth and falsehood, just as one distinguishes between truth and falsehood in the outer world where one also only has the soundness of one's mind, one's common sense, as a basis for distinguishing truth from falsehood. Anyone who, for example, recalls Schopenhauer's proposition that the world with which I am surrounded is my idea or mental picture can form for himself an idea of what is meant. 
I do not underrate the philosophy of Schopenhauer, otherwise I would not myself have edited it and written an introduction to it. But great minds often make the simplest errors. For the proposition, quote, the world is my mental picture, close quote, can be refuted if one draws attention to the very trivial fact that if someone forms for himself the idea of a piece of steel heated to 900 degrees and thinks of his fingers as he does so, he does not burn himself. He will never burn himself by having such an idea, however much he may be filled with it. But if he has an actual piece of steel, he will burn himself. Thus he can distinguish the reality of an idea not through concepts and philosophies, but through experience. And there is no other way of doing so. And there is also no way of making distinctions on the supersensible level other than by acquiring through schooling the right relationship with supersensible reality. Thus it is necessary for our consciousness that we know that the way that imaginations manifest themselves initially can be attributed to our soul itself, and they are therefore merely a reflection of our own being. A person can have the most wonderful imaginations, but he would do well to interpret them by saying to himself, what do these images that appear before my soul tell me about my hidden feelings, my hidden suffering, my beliefs and superstitions? When he sees in the images nothing other than the reflection of himself, he has acquired the right state of consciousness to follow the paths into the supersensible world. He must then be prepared by the strong forces residing in his soul to be a fighter against himself. He must tear out by the roots what he has often sought most strongly to believe in, what he most loves, and what for many people could already signify a state of bliss and be able to let it be immersed in a sphere of forgotten ideas. When he has then so selflessly wrenched from himself what his soul has achieved and has surrendered it to the world, it then comes back to him again as inspiration. He is then at the point of being able to live with those beings, the actual beings and facts of the supersensible world, to whom such ideas belong. At first, such imaginations appear thoroughly familiar to us because we are able to investigate how the way they are formed is due to the fact that they are a reflection of our soul. One can always prove from the world of imaginations that their character is a reflection of ourselves and of our state of soul. But when they reappear, the situation is completely different. The images that return are not the same, but different in character, something new that we have not previously encountered, and which presents itself no less as a reality than do outer realities show themselves to us. Nevertheless, one has a totally different feeling toward them. We stand with regard to the things of the outer world in such a way that we have an external relationship to them. A table that we contemplate is outside us, where the facts and things of the higher worlds that we encounter are concerned, we have, if we have prepared ourselves for this in the manner described, at the same time as an inner experience, the awareness that we have been able to gain access to them 
only by having given something to them that we have first brought forth in ourselves from the depths of our soul. Indeed, just as an object is lying before me and I want to take hold of it and I must stretch out my hand and become aware of its reality, so by means of what I achieve only through the method described do I have to separate what has come toward me in the form of an imagination from my own egoity, submerge it in oblivion, in order then to reach out with my own being to a world that I can take hold of. People register their objections to many things, also with respect to what I have just said. But however much one may look around and with however much goodwill one may familiarize oneself with these adversarial comments, one thing always becomes apparent. The people who repudiate what has now been said have not as yet understood it. This is shown by the way in which they speak about it. And it does not occur to anyone who has understood it to want to refute it. Thus one very frequently encounters this supposed objection that one hears. But surely these supersensible imaginations that you have and which you consider to be impressions of beings who inspire you are not to be distinguished from perfectly ordinary illusions or delusions. On the contrary, they differ quite massively from these in that a real spirit researcher has a consciousness that is different from them, a consciousness which enables him to maintain his healthy human understanding with respect to these things, and equally to the things of the outer world. Hence, superstitious or credulous individuals, those who are habitually referred to as dreamers, are the least suited to be real spirit researchers. Anyone who readily accepts a truth will quite definitely not be able to undertake proper research in the spiritual world. Fantasy and belief are the greatest enemies of true spiritual research. Despite the fact that fantasy in art and belief in reality can be the most wonderful gifts to spiritual research. For what can be researched in the spiritual domain can be transformed into something imaginative and into a work of art. Similarly, when it is said that what spirit researchers impart is something that speaks only to belief, the following principle applies. The spirit researcher believes what he knows. He would, however, also be a fool if he did not believe what he knows, but he believes nothing other than what he knows. What is actually being said is that we have to draw forth from the soul what we have acquired, that we must extend organs that have, as it were, become spiritual, and through them receive back the spiritual reality. When we increasingly come to live into such a soul life, we also grow more and more together with the beings and things of the spiritual world. It then comes about that what occurs in our consciousness is that we do not associate with these beings as one human being associates with another through outer organs, but through what speaks directly from being to being, what is, as it were, perceived directly by the beings, in that our soul is in immediate proximity to the being whom it perceives, so that it is, so to speak, not outside this being, but within it. 
Then initiation ensues, which is actually the conclusion of supersensible knowledge, of that supersensible knowledge that leads not into a vague, nebulous, spiritual life, but into one that is penetrated with being and filled with reality. There is no other way of really coming into proximity with the Spirit and its existence than, as it were, to merge with it, as has now been described. But everything with which we do not fully unite ourselves can never serve as a proof for the Spirit, for there is no other proof than finding the point of coincidence between one's own experience and the experience of the Spirit. Anyone who wants to gain knowledge of a spiritual being must bring his soul to the point where he is able to let his own experience come together with the experience of this spiritual being. The whole course of spiritual experience, as it has been described, can make it understandable. It would serve no purpose to obscure the actual realities, and one must rather express them openly, that a person can most easily, already through imaginative knowledge, come to a knowledge of what I might call pure, in quotes, spirits, whose existence is purely spiritual, and who are not enshrouded with any mantle other than that of a soul-spiritual nature. Spiritual beings who do not enter into incarnation, who do not manifest themselves in outer influences of nature, can be recognized already at the stage of imagination, if we do not yet have the capacity to reach through to inspiration. Thus it happens in such a way that the imaginations that we have submerged in forgetfulness return to us in a transmuted form, and we recognize them as images of spiritual beings who are as spiritual as our soul-spiritual nature, as conceived without a body. On the other hand, one has to rise to inspiration if one wants to come to know beings who are, for example, connected with the elements of nature, with what radiates within nature, with the warmth relationships in nature, and so forth. In short, creative powers and beings who express themselves in outer existence and can be recognized there only in their outer manifestations. This is possible only through inspiration. To this end, what we have in our soul must be drawn forth more intensively so that it reaches down further than in the case with beings who have a purely spiritual existence. And the strongest forces of seership must be used if one wants to come to know those creative forces which outer intellectual consciousness identifies only as materialistic nature forces, which are, however, in truth, creative beings. If we want to recognize these creative beings who lie hidden behind all outer existence, we must be able to draw our inner soul life forth from ourselves as strongly as is the case when we have ascended to intuition. This means that it is one of the most difficult challenges to come to know about the previous incarnation of a particular individual. For in the case of someone whom we encounter in the world of the senses, we are also dealing with what manifests itself in the effects of nature, in bodily influences. Behind these bodily influences, 
there lies something of the nature of creative powers. But for the spiritual seer, this is hidden behind the externalities of the body, just as the spiritual beings who are present in lightning and thunder and behind all nature are concealed behind such phenomena. And the one is hardly easier to find than the other. Thus, it is a frequent experience that people who come to intuition relate all kinds of illusions about earlier incarnations. It is therefore good if one sets as little store as possible by this. The true spirit researcher knows that this is something of the greatest difficulty, which even for a developed soul is possible only at fleeting moments. What has been said so far relates to the investigation of the supersensible world, of what lives and weaves within it. Anyone who prepares his soul in the manner described thereby makes his soul into an instrument for gaining insight into the supersensible worlds. However, for the spirit researcher who wants to communicate spiritual knowledge of the world, it is only then that the most significant task arises. For this beholding of the spiritual worlds is generally something that people who do not have the appropriate knowledge of it misunderstand and fail to appreciate. And this too forms part of a right appraisal of the paths of supersensible knowledge, that people are able to form a judgment as to what real spiritual knowledge is and what is either a load of nonsense, charlatanism or self-deception. It has to be said again and again, in order to engage in researching the spiritual world, in order to search for supersensible facts and beings, it is necessary for the soul to educate itself for this. But if a spirit researcher who has gained access in the right way to the supersensible worlds has appropriately clothed his observations and concepts which are familiar to anyone of sound mind, and are in accordance with the right feeling for truth. What the spirit researcher describes can also be understood in the right way by anyone who does not labor under a misapprehension. A suitably prepared soul is needed for researching supersensible facts and beings, but never for understanding them. This is, in a sense, the mystery of the description of spiritual things, that once they have been investigated through supersensible forces of cognition, they can be described in such a way that they can be understood by anyone. One thing that clearly needs to be said is that the human soul needs the results of spiritual research in order to understand those things of which we shall be speaking in the next lecture about, quote, vital questions and the riddle of death, close quote. The human soul thirsts for ideas and concepts regarding what goes beyond death, for ideas and concepts that can really encompass the nature of the soul. And anyone who wanted to reject the idea of understanding the nature of the soul would probably be able to suppress, for a while, the soul's longing to solve the riddles of the world. But it will become all the more apparent that in refusing the soul spiritual nourishment, we are unable to suppress the hunger that presents itself and can drive the soul not only to despair but to ill health. Both for his well-being and his self-confidence in life, a person needs the results of spiritual research. 
and all that is needed for the soul to become acquainted in the right way with the results of spiritual research is a good measure of common sense. A natural sense of truth is sufficient in order to understand what the spirit researcher communicates. For as long as it has not been researched, nothing can be said about it. But if it has been researched and rightly formulated, it can be understood. How very true this is can be shown by the fact that the spirit researcher receives absolutely nothing for his soul happiness, for everything that he needs in general for his soul, from his, in quotes, visions. He has a new world, but this new world is of absolutely no use to him so long as he has not brought it to the point where it has come to shed light on the soul life that we lead on a daily basis and which yearns for solutions to life's riddles. What the spirit researcher can have from his research, he has fully in common with the others to whom it is related, and who understand it with a natural sense of truth and a healthy human understanding. But as regards what the soul needs for life, the spirit researcher has nothing through his research but solely through what comes about through the research and can be communicated to everyone. Moreover, the spirit researcher can only mean something to humanity as a whole if he is in a position to embody the results of his research in concepts and ideas in such a way that they can be grasped out of the ideas of the respective age, provided that they are sufficiently free of prejudices and preconceptions. There is, to be sure, a widespread lack of such open-mindedness at present, because people believe that other ideas, for example those of natural science, contradict these results of spiritual science. However, if one enters with greater precision into the results of spiritual scientific research, one will everywhere see that that is not the case. But there is something else that stands between the spirit researcher and his public. For the very fact that he is able to perceive the spiritual world means that what he beholds is widely unrecognized. People fall prey to the gravest errors with respect to the spirit researcher as such precisely when they want to approach spiritual research or have a longing for it. To put it in a nutshell, I shall point out that the greatest error amongst well-meaning people is that because the spirit researcher has prepared his soul to gain insight into the spiritual world, they look upon him as a kind of, quote, higher animal, close quote, that he has something that places him ahead of other people. But through such a view, someone who cherishes the wish to come to supersensible knowledge succeeds only in placing barriers in his path. Out of a certain goodwill, it comes to be thought that the spirit researcher, because he can see into the spiritual world, is therefore a step above other people and is of greater worth than they are, that it is a particularly worthy aspiration for the human soul and its true significance to be able to gain insight into the spiritual world. That this aspiration manifests itself in our time in the widest circles has its origin in a circumstance that can be characterized in the following way. 
In former times we also find communications from spiritual research that have been made to human beings. For the most part, however, only the results were communicated. There was not the kind of discussion of the methods, as is, for example, possible today, or as can be disseminated in a published book, such as Title Knowledge of the Higher Worlds, or my book title, An Outline of Occult Science, or, readers aside, An Outline of Esoteric Science, same title. End of readers aside. For certain reasons, the methods were spoken about only before a few individuals in whose particular qualities one had complete confidence. This was appropriate for former times, because people in general had the right feeling, and also the sense for truth, to let the results work upon their souls, and also let their souls benefit from them, but not sufficiently to overcome the difficulties in order that the soul can enter the spiritual world. Today, souls live differently. Today, there is the possibility of a completely different thinking. Let us simply compare how people are able to think quite differently today, not only through the continued progress of natural science, but the way in which people learn to think quite differently through the advances in education than was formerly the case. Because of this, people today have been enabled to judge things better, and this means that things can be communicated. But this is only in its initial stages. Hence, it is inevitable that mistakes will be made. One such error arises when one sees the spirit researcher as something special. However, simply because a person has heightened his level of knowledge in the manner described, it does not mean that he is superior to those who are unable to have such knowledge. Just as a chemist is no different from other people because he knows about chemistry, so is the spirit researcher also no different from the rest of humanity. The worth of a person is not determined by such things, but it is defined within certain narrower limits through intellectuality, through the power of sound thinking. A person who can think is of greater value than another person whose thinking is of poor quality. And in a wider sense, a person's worth is determined by his morality, through the fact that he fulfills moral acts and has a moral soul condition. He gains an advantage not through a particular soul development, but solely through intellectual and moral qualities. For this reason, the bad habit of considering that the spirit researcher who can behold the spiritual world has a particular authority is someone special simply because he can do this, a habit that is such a barrier to the path of supersensible knowledge must be completely eradicated from those who want to approach such knowledge. This habit calls forth a belief in authority and a quality of blind discipleship, which are already bad enough in other areas, but which are worst of all in the realm of spiritual scientific research. For with regard to the matter of spiritual research, Experience attests to the following. Anyone who has acquired healthy, sound, and logical thinking within ordinary life, as do other people who stand within ordinary life, carries this logical, healthy thinking also into the supersensible worlds and is therefore able to judge what is real, what is right and true, and is, as a result, able to convey 
right judgments to his fellow human beings from what he has come to know. It is not by beholding the supersensible worlds that one formulates right judgments, but by entering into the situation with a right understanding, with good logic. A fool who is able to perceive a great deal in the spiritual world, who beholds vast amounts of all manner of spiritual things, because his soul has some sort of proclivity for this, will also speak a lot of pure nonsense as to how it is in the spiritual world. Whether one comes to the truth depends on how one is able to judge. Thus someone with a sound mind, even if he cannot perceive the spiritual world, is at any time able to judge whether that which someone who claims, however ardently to have seen, in quotes, in the spiritual world, is nonsense or whether it makes proper sense. If someone shows that he is unable to think properly, that he cannot connect things in the right way, then instead of listening to the spirit researcher, he would do better to pay proper attention to this problem. For then he will always know whether something is coming from an intelligent or a foolish source. Even more significant in this respect is one's moral state. Anyone who approaches the spiritual world with passions and unpleasant feelings and emotions, especially if combined with vanity and inordinate ambition, will see what is presented to him in a distorted and untrue fashion. He will perceive the worst parts of the spiritual domain, and these will appear to him in such a way that they do not impart truth to him, but bind him to illusions. His moral state has a decisive influence over what, as a spiritual seer, he is able to behold in the spiritual world. Thus, spiritual seership in itself is by no means a reason to set up someone as some kind of authority. It is far more important that we pay attention to the way in which spiritual research is prepared. And we must know that we wreak the greatest havoc if we do not watch attentively with our healthy powers of reason and see only what has to be objectively evaluated. This is the path for forming judgments about spiritual knowledge on the part of those who long for such knowledge for the benefit and happiness of their souls. When someone relates in this way to the spirit researcher, this relationship of the world to the spirit researcher is no different from the relationship of the world to other sciences and disciplines. Just as not everyone can go to the observatory or to the laboratory, relatively few people have real insight into the spiritual world although a certain depth of insight is always possible today. However, it is not necessary for everyone to have such insight, for the fruits of spiritual knowledge can be understood by an unprejudiced mind when they are communicated. This can become the right relationship of the spirit researcher to his audience, and this is also the right way for human interaction to proceed. the more one endeavors not to regard the spirit researcher as an authority, but to rely on one's sound common sense to examine everything, and the more one measures everything that the spirit researcher says by how one views it if one compares it with life, if, in other words, one uses one's sound common sense, the more firmly 
one stands on solid ground. We should make it very clear that spiritual science, to the extent that the world needs it, is accessible today to every human being because of the fact that it can be comprehended, even though not everyone can perceive the spiritual worlds. We are today already at the point where no soul is any longer denied the possibility of following the path into the spiritual world. It is a demand of our age that human beings are increasingly convinced that the path into the supersensible worlds is one that can be explored. This is the right course, in contrast to that which leads a person to a blind belief in authority. And only what is right has value for the happiness and benefit of the soul. These are some indications about the paths to supersensible knowledge. To that knowledge which truly leads us into a spiritual world that lies behind our sensory world and which also enables us to comprehend this spiritual world. The spirit researcher himself only has something from the spiritual world for his own being and personal circumstances if he is not only able to perceive it but can also understand what he has perceived. For to perceive everything without enabling it to be understood is of no value. But if it has been understood, and moreover, with the sound common sense or healthy human reason, as has been characterized, and a natural feeling for truth, then it is engraved in our soul, becomes intimately connected with it, and our soul immediately feels what resides within it, just as when the soul comes before a picture, it immediately feels what is in the picture, even if it has not itself painted it. Just as in order to receive something from a picture, it is not necessary that one must be a painter, it is equally unnecessary for the purpose of gaining insight, or at least sufficient insight, into knowledge that is highly necessary for the soul, for example, of immortality or passing through repeated earthly lives, that one can oneself form this knowledge in visionary perception, although it would be good if more and more people were able to do so. But the time demands that ever more people will do this, because the need to gain access to the supersensible world will come to be ever more pressing, if not overwhelming. Souls will increasingly be compelled, also in a certain sense, to become seers, to grow together with the spiritual world. This makes possible whether in the form of an understanding of oneself or of another person, the possession of the supersensible truths, the supersensible knowledge that our soul knows, just as we know through outer science how all the outer substances that are in our body are present in the whole universe, so that we are, as it were, embedded in the likeness that is spread out in the entire universe. Investigations that have been made possible only through spectral analysis. How man has been fashioned out of the universe. Thus he also learns, through spiritually based research, that in everything that weaves and surges in his consciousness or in his subconscious, he is connected with a world of spiritual beings, who are indeed more real than the substances with which the body is connected. 
Thus a person gradually feels the fruits of spiritual research in his restfulness of soul and feels also the strength to work and be active in the spiritual whole in the divinely and spiritually imbued universe. But this enables him to know for the first time what he is and what knowledge is necessary for him that he lives calmly and actively, thinking, feeling and willing in the spirit-imbued universe and feels and knows himself to be connected with it. And this constitutes what the soul cannot do without, what it seeks, if it does not have it for a certain length of time. This requires the soul, if it is not to become a desolate, and through desolation not to become incapable, to work together on behalf of humanity lest it does not only enter into a state of desolation as regards divine powers, but also into decadence. The awareness of this affinity with the supersensible worlds lies at the foundation of what was instinctively living in Goethe when he said, quote, Were not the eye not sun imbued, it could sun's glory ne'er perceive. Were God's own power not in us laid, how could we God's delights receive? The eye is indeed sun imbued, EYE. The same power that is in the sun is in the eye. In this way, like can, as the old philosopher said, be recognized by like. There is a divine power within man. The whole world is impregnated with divinity. And because of this, the inner divinity can comprehend the divinity without. But Goethe recognized that the opposite is also true. Although he makes the whole world into a manifestation of the will, Schopenhauer is unable to see that not only is what is within us necessary for knowledge of the world around us, but on the other hand, the outer is also necessary for the inner world. Schopenhauer would say that the sun is there only because we have an eye. Through this reasoning, the strange philosophy has arisen which regards the world as without sound, without warmth, and so on. And all this is enabled to begin only when the human organs make their presence felt in the world. But Goethe rightly knew that not only do we see things because we have eyes and hear sounds because we have ears, but that an eye can come into being only because the sun is there. From his previous eyeless state, man became a being who can see through the fact that light filled space, and from the organism that as yet had no eye brought the eye forth. The power of the sun created the eye through the light that it radiated. Thus, it is not a matter of our bearing the divine within us and of simply projecting into the world the divine that we have first created within us, as is, for example, indicated by Feuerbach. But we must know that we would not have the, quote, this sense of God, close quote, within us if the divine spiritual powers did not fill the world and had not created an organ for the spirit within us just as the outer sun has created the outer eye. So we can say, the consciousness that soul and world belong together, that gives strength and power to the soul, 
and enables it to rest and be active in the spiritual universe is composed of two things, two things of which we can characterize one with Goethe's beautiful words, quote, Were the world not sun-imbued, it could sun's glory ne'er perceive. Were God's own power not in us laid, how could we God's delights receive? Close quote. But it is wholly in accordance with what Goethe says, if by complementing this one-sided truth with another that makes it into a complete truth, we add another verse, which could be worded thus, quote, Were the world not sun-endowed, how could eyes from beings bloom? Were existence not God's revelation, how could men come to fulfill God's word? Close quote. The end of Lecture 4